Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have Dr. James Galbraith. Uh, He is the Lloyd Benson Chair in Government and Business Relations in the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas, Austin. Dr. Galbraith, thanks so much for coming on the show this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to sort of situate you um, in terms of where I am at, I guess, sort of ideologically and... (laughs) Just to give you a little bit of context, um, so I sort of fall within the, I don't know, the libertarian socialist or anarcho-communist sort of vein, loosely, more or less. And and like most leftists, I have studied very little economics <laughs> to sort of fit the cliche. But I, uh, the one book that I have read is Hen- Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. <laughs> Just to give you a little background on where I'm at, and uh, my audience is, I would say, a per- fairly layperson audience as well. But uh, I'd like to sort of start out just. I, re- I remember reading Hazlitt <laughs> in graduate school. I don't remember a thing about it. So. <laughs> I remember uh, the thing that sticks out the broken window argument that he makes. That's kind of the, the okay. only thing that I remember, I'll take to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just if you don't mind, walk us through a little bit about your sort of educational background and and sort of what got you into studying economics and and so forth? Oh, I studied economics for a very simple reason. At the time, it appeared that a degree in economics gave you an entree uh, into the policymaking world that uh, other degrees simply didn't didn't have the same, uh, let's say, cachet. So I figured I needed to get one. Uh, But my interests then and, and almost continuously since have been much more with with policy questions, and I uh, I moved in and out uh, of uh, presidential campaigns and congressional staff jobs uh, throughout uh, that student period of my life, uh, and uh, very quickly, actually, even before I finished my degree, I was the uh, I found myself catapulted to the position of executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of the Congress uh, right at the start of the Reagan. Era, so I was in charge of a small team that was, uh, you know, had the responsibility of obstructing as much as we could of the damage <laughs> that, the, uh, that we felt the Reagan administration was a, was in the course of doing, uh, and that carried on for about four years from nineteen through the first term, nineteen eighty one to uh, end of eighty four, at which point, after a brief interlude, I came here, and I've been here ever since. Nice. Um, so had you always sort of had a left-leaning approach to... Well, I, I, gr- I grew up in a household with a certain connection to the uh, progressive and institutionalist pragmatist tradition. Uh, my father got his start at the start of the New Deal uh, when he immigrated to the United States from Canada uh, after getting got a PhD at Berkeley and then started with the Agricultural Adjustment Administration in 1934. Uh, and you know he was uh, he was in charge of price control during the Second World War for a year, so he had an ex- exceedingly important responsibility at that time, uh, and then became, uh, as I think everybody knows, a, 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 a more than prominent figure uh, in the politics and the economics of uh, the, uh, the Kennedy Johnson years, uh, as well as the, the leading figure in the. Uh, opposition, the liberal opposition to the Vietnam War. Uh, so all of that was in my background. Uh, and so at, at, at a certain, um, to, certain, to a certain degree, this uh, engagement with the public sphere is bred in the bone. <laughs> it's a great pedigree. 
So your your most recent work seems to have focused primarily on sort of the development of predatory capitalism and as well as just focusing on inequality, broadly speaking. What, I mean, it sounds like your background sort of led to that, but could you maybe provide a little bit more, unpack that a little bit for us in terms of what kind of drove your interests and maybe areas that you could sort of focus on? Yeah, there there are a couple of separate, uh, at least mildly separated strands here. One, which you mentioned, is the the phenomenon of predatory capitalism. Uh, And I wrote a book called The Predator State, uh, the subtitle of how conservatives abandoned the free market and why liberals should too. Uh, which appeared in, in 2008. Uh, and that was motivated uh, by uh, uh, this, the intense anger I felt uh, at the way uh, the government of the United States was being conducted at that time uh, in so far as uh, it was an exercise in uh, raiding the public sphere, the established public sphere, uh, for the benefit of private actors. And you could see this whether it was in uh, you know, the... Uh, attempt to privatize Social Security or the way in which uh, a very, um, uh, let's say, a, a, a drug benefit very favorable to the pharmaceutical companies was enacted or in the complete catastrophe of the way in which the government reacted to Hurricane Katrina. I think I actually started to write that book in the direct aftermath of Hurricane Katrina with a feeling that you had to do something. Uh, the other strand, uh, which relates to economic inequality, has been going on for a much for a long time now. It's uh, something that I got into oh, a little over 20 years ago. Uh, and that I started in a fairly routine way uh, as uh, I was solicited by a, 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 by a funder, by a foundation, 20th Century Fund at the time, uh, to do a monograph on an, a debate that was, uh, had developed in academic economics on the reasons for the rise in inequality. Uh, that was observed. This is already, this is the middle 1990s. Um, and it became clear to me that I couldn't make any useful contribution to that discussion unless I did some work uh, to try and develop the information base on which uh, uh, you could rest an argument. Uh, and in order to do, make a contribution to that, it then developed that you had to, you had to think of some new methods for, uh, let's say, improving the way in which inequality is measured. Uh, and once I got a little team of students, very talented uh, uh, young people, uh, interested in that problem, it then rolled by itself over several decades, cohorts of, of small groups of PhD students working on that problem, uh, and that sort of cumulative exercise in developing global data sets and, and, and doing analyses from them. So that's much more, it's not really particularly political work, although it obviously bears on a, a problem that is important politically, uh, but it, uh, it's one where I think over time we've made a significant contribution. I remember, uh, so I was doing a bit of background research and I took a look at your website and I saw that you had an animated um, GIF that sort of displayed the uh, progression of the Gini coefficient um, over time, over the last several decades. and. Uh, let's, that's certainly a measure of inequality that's commonly used. Would, could you break down exactly a little bit more for the layperson what the Gini coefficient is and sort of what it does? Well, it is, as you say, a fairly standard measure of the degree of inequality in a, 
uh, you know, in the population's incomes or in some other measure, but it's usually income. Uh, and uh, the difficulty of coming up with a uh, reasonably trustworthy uh, set of measures uh, for the world as a whole is that uh, uh, the raw material uh, is largely sample surveys. Uh, sample surveys are costly. Uh, you have to have a team going out, taking, uh, interviewing, finding out what fa uh, you know what what incomes were for individuals or families in a given year. Um, they're not they're terribly reliable in and of themselves. Depends upon the quality of the survey, how much resources are thrown at it. Uh, they're often inconsistent from one country to the next because there are different concepts of, of income, different concepts. Uh, of uh, sometimes it's not even income that's being measured, but rather household expenditures. Uh, so there's a, and there's a question of whether it's before tax or after tax. All kinds of variations that are possible in the approach to getting this information. Uh, and beyond that, for a great part of the world, they simply uh, surveys were not taken uh, over long periods of time. There may be there are countries where they were never taken countries where there may be two or three in a 50-year period, and you can't tell very much uh, from that inf information of that sort. So that was the problem that we faced, uh, and the question that we then had to ask ourselves is, ourselves is, is there another way of getting at the same phenomenon? In other words, another way of taking a measurement which may be present in data that was collected historically that may not be survey data? Uh, and the answer to that, as it turned out, was yes. Uh, that. Uh, not everywhere, but in countries that have reasonably well-organized governments, uh, there is a tendency to collect information about particularly manufacturing facilities and what they pay and how much employment they have, but also on a geographic basis for, let's say, a province or a municipality, how much population do they have, what's the, uh, what's the average income uh, of that area. And those data are collected routinely according to you know, very standardized uh, procedures, at least within a country. And if you go and collect it from the national authorities or go and collect a compilation from an international agency, uh, you can compute inequality measures, which then we discovered track the available survey data pretty well. Uh, so that meant, that meant we could fill in the gaps and we could come up with a map like the one on the website, which tracks our estimate of the movement of income inequality over, what, five decades uh, uh, for a large fraction of the countries of the world, and certainly all of the ones that have um, you know, significant, uh, significant presence in, the, in, in, in worldwide economic data. Now, this would be as opposed to, so I guess the, the standard measure of economic success, at least in in the U.S. or Western countries would be measures of GDP. Sure, national income account measures, sure. And uh, what we do is not opposed to that, but it's, it's, let's say, measuring a different aspect of economic performance. The national income accounts, the gross domestic product measures, which are now fairly standard around the world, what they're attempting to get at is the total volume of economic activity, this total expenditure by households on their final consumption by businesses on their investment by the government on its procurement of goods and services 
Now, you add all those things up together, you get a measure of activity, and the change in that activity is your measure of economic growth. And so when, when you compare the you know, U.S. economy to the Chinese economy, which one is bigger, it's a GDP measure that people are interested in. But that's not the only thing that's of interest or importance. A second question is, within each country, uh, how evenly or unevenly is the, are the incomes distributed? Uh, are they concentrated amongst a small number of people at the top with a lot of people who are, who are poor? Or are they, uh, is the bulk of the income uh, flowing to a substantial middle class uh, with some limits on how rich people are and how poor people are? And that's the measurement that we're getting at. And we think it's a very significant, uh, it's obviously a very significant indicator of the, uh, of, of the condition of an economy. And one of the things you find is that, uh, that uh, the wealthier countries of the world are systematically more egalitarian than the poorer countries. Now, why is that? Well, in order to be wealthy, uh, a lot of people in the country have to have significant income. That means there has to be a middle class. That's the basic essence of it. So the two, the two, uh, the two ways of measuring are, or the two measurements are not unconnected with each other. There's a significant relationship between them for a very common sense reason, uh, but they are uh, essentially uh, different in, in, in what, they are, what they're getting at. Now, Gini is not the only measurement of inequality. There's also with the, the teal. It's the tile statistic. Tile these statistic. are these are technical details. The Gini is 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 one way of calculating a measure of inequality. The tile statistic, which we use, has uh, the advantage that you can compute it easily from data uh, that is organized into groups. So basically, what you're looking at is a table that's been published. Uh, in some government record that gives you, oh, let's say for the 50 U.S. states in the District of Columbia, uh, their their populations and their uh, their average income, and I can then easily compute a, 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 a an index of inequality across states, or I can do it across you know, 3,150 counties in the U.S. I can do it across counties. So this measure is very flexible, very easy to calculate, uh, and it. I know it functionally it would it tracks a survey measure a Gini based measure uh, pretty well, uh, but it's uh, it, the the computation is quite different and it's and it's very easy to do and very inexpensive, which is why it's attractive to us because we have been working with uh, what what is by the standard of this kind of research very very small amounts of funding so. A few students, cups of coffee, uh, and you know we come back with measures. We put them up on the web, and we discover that the research community cites them favorably in comparison to the work of the World Bank. It's not bad. Nice. So again, to reference that chart on your website, it it seemed very stark that the drastic change over the course of time uh, in the in the Gini co coefficient measures. Um, could what did your what sort of did your data like what did that what sort of conclusions well we looked led at, to that yeah we looked at uh, how the patterns unfold over time uh, and it is very interesting uh, the there is as you say a, a big a drastic increase in inequality and when you look at it on a year to year basis you can date the starting point around 1980 81 uh, and you can date an end point or at least a point at which there's a peak around 2000 uh, which is already now, almost 20 years, 18 years ago now. 
Um, so this period is one in which inequality rises systematically around the world. Before that, I mean, our data started usually around 1963. Um, before that, there's a period that's reasonably stable, and then a period from 1971 to 1980 when, in many countries, particularly poorer countries, inequality uh, is declining, actually. Uh, so there's this big turnaround in 1980. Now you ask, okay, what is, what, is there a significance to that turning point? The answer to that is sure there is. It's the start of the neoliberal period of the of the Reagan administration in the U.S., the Thatcher administration in the U.K., but even much more important than that, it's the start of the global debt crisis. Uh, there was a period when interest rates were raised here uh, to 20 percent, early, wow. early 1981, <laughs> uh, and it was said to be fighting against inflation, although I think it's fair to say that what the Federal Reserve was doing at that point was defending the dollar. Uh, and, uh, and then that threw much of the developing world into crisis. Uh, you had major depressions all through Latin America, through Africa, parts of Southeast Asia. Um, and, uh, and that uh, raises inequality very clearly in the early 1980s. Then you have the collapse of commodity prices and the uh, collapse ultimately of the East Bloc, of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Their inequality goes up at the end of the 1980s, and then you have the Asian crisis in the 1990s, and you see the same thing. So you have a series of financial debacles uh, which bring on major political change and which raise inequality around the world over that 20-year period. That's the major finding of the, at, the, at the global level. I've had a sort of idea of, or I've been curious as to if it, what, if any, impact sort of leaving the gold standard has done, like decoupling the U.S. dollar from gold as it was that Nixon did that uh, in, yes. what, 71? August 15th, 1971, yes. Um, well, it's not entirely accurate to say that we were on the gold standard uh, in the period uh, from 1944 to 1971, the period of the, of the Bretton Woods institutions. That was an arrangement in which most of the world was on a dollar standard, but the U.S. government agreed that it would convert uh, dollars to gold only for other central banks. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, the kind of gold standard that existed at the end of the 19th century, right. uh, but it was what's, what was called a gold exchange standard. Okay. Uh, and its purpose was to enable um, a set of institutions backed by the United States to stabilize the exchange rates of the participating trading community, which it more or less succeeded in doing until the late 1960s. Uh, and yes, uh, you can see, in, so far as we have data, it, there doesn't appear to be a trend in inequality uh, during the period of the Bretton Woods uh, system of the gold exchange standard. Uh, it, when Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, he devalued the dollar. Uh, he put the U.S. on a path of expansion that lasted into, into to 1973. Uh, and there was a major then increase in oil prices, other commodity prices, uh, and a huge flow of private commercial bank debt uh, from uh, basically recycling from the uh, from the oil-producing countries to Latin America and elsewhere through the commercial banks and commercial rates. Then this lasted until 1980. And during that period, 
it's a commodities boom, uh, pretty high growth rates in lots of lower income countries, and you can see inequality coming down. Uh, but it's not sustainable. And at the end, at 1981, 8081, uh, this comes to an end, and then you have this breakdown that goes on for 20 years. What were some of the decisions, I guess, that led to the dissolution of the of the Bretton Woods sort of uh, model? Uh, well, uh, the U.S. started running a trade deficit, um, I would guess, in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, and there was concern over that period of about something called the gold outflow, which was basically uh, uh, other countries, other central banks, uh, cashing in their dollars for gold. There was a, a, what was called the dollar overhang uh, in that period. Uh, and this got deeper as, uh, as the Johnson administration pursued uh, both the Vietnam War and the Great Society. Uh, and it was pretty clear already before Richard Nixon took office uh, that uh, the uh, gold window was going to have to be closed at some point. I, I know that Johnson said to his... Uh, White House staff person, the national security uh, deputy director for national security, who was responsible for this at the time, uh, that uh, he was not going to uh, give up the great society just so that uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle could purchase his gold at uh, $35 an ounce. Uh, and he was right about that. Uh, so the, uh, uh, the writing was on the wall. The pressure was on, was on to, uh, to, to change the system. Uh, Nixon held out until August of 71, and then he came down with a major series of, uh, of, of, of uh, policy reversals. And, the, and the, uh, we've been living with the consequences with the floating exchange rate system uh, ever since. Can you unpack that floating exchange system for us, at least from a broad perspective? What, just what, sort it, of describe that. what it means that instead of having a fixed value for the major currencies, and particularly for the dollar, uh, that value was set by, uh, uh, by in, in, on international financial markets, and it can change from day to day, which it does. Uh, but the interesting thing is that for a period, a floating rate system meant that the dollar was mostly falling, uh, and the currencies that were rising uh, through 1980 were the, the, the Deutsche Mark and the Japanese yen. Um, and... Uh, 1980-81 brought that to an end, uh, and the dollar went up dramatically uh, and became the core of the uh, world trading system, uh, the undisputed core, and that lasted uh, until the creation of the euro. In fact, the creation of the euro was a reaction uh, to, in part, to the, to the dominance of the dollar, an attempt to create a European counterweight. Uh, which has been, let's say, somewhat successful, partly successful, has had major problems inside Europe uh, because the structure of the European, the European Union and the Eurozone uh, is not adequate to support a single currency. But on the world stage, the euro now exists as a um, partial substitute for the dollar. Uh, and we're uh, going to see over the next decades uh, whether there will emerge any other partial substitutes, either the Chinese currency or some combination of the trading zone that's emerging now between China, Russia, um, countries of Central Asia, for example. Uh, so that's all sort of coming into the future. Uh, but up till now, uh, and perhaps for the foreseeable future, 
the dollar remains the, the currency in which most um, uh, world trade is cleared. Uh, and the U.S. is able to finance a very substantial trade deficit without much difficulty. Uh, can sell bonds because it becomes a financial asset, which most of the rest of the world is willing to hold, uh, in spite of you know, substantial, obvious mismanagement of the U.S. economy. <laughs> How long they'll be able to do that is sort of anybody's guess. It might be helpful for us to even delve in, into in terms of how the sort of, I guess, modern monetary theory in terms of just how additional, how currency is created or proliferates from a sort of broad perspective. Right. Well, in terms the, of the Federal yeah, Reserve setting let, interest I'll, rates. I'll say and, a word about, about modern monetary theory, MMT as they call it. Uh, this is a, uh, a very uh, interesting and very uh, energetic school of, uh, of economists. Uh, the phrase modern monetary theory is uh, a bit of a, an inside um, jest, an inside joke, uh, derived from a comment made by John Maynard Keynes in a book that he published in the early 1930s called The Treatise on Money, uh, in which he describes modern monetary systems as those that have been in existence for the last 5,000 years. So it's only a comparison <laughs> with those before that that it's, that it's, uh, that it's modern. Um, the, uh, uh, and what, uh, what he, the reference is to a monetary system that is based on credit, that is based on the, uh, on the fundamental institution of the banking system, central bank, but, but especially the merchant bank, commercial banks, um, which extend, which create money by making loans. Uh, the loans, the insight here, which is somewhat hard for people to grasp sometimes, is that uh, when a bank extends a loan, it creates a deposit, and that deposit is money. The bank is chartered to create money in that sense. It's just a ledger item in the bank's books, but from the standpoint of the person taking out the loan, it's real money. They, they, can, they immediately go to their checkbook, start writing checks on it, and start using it for the purpose that the loan was offered for. And this is why banks are institutions that are central to the functioning of a, of, of a modern private economy. And as they say, modern, they have been that way for, for thousands of years, but especially since the, since the, um, the, the Renaissance, this was the function of the, of the banks of Amsterdam and London, and the reason why those uh, uh, cities were at the start of what we call the modern capitalist system. Now, how, how does that impact sort of, I guess, the way that the government like when we have a when we have a national debt, what is that? How does that tie into central banking and and currency creation? Well, uh, the government's bonds uh, are uh, an alternative uh, to holding uh, cash, which the advantage of holding bonds is that it, they they pay Maturing. interest. They pay interest, so you could you get something. Uh, for having your holding your uh, your your uh, your liquid assets in that form, um, and in return, you what you give up is a very small amount of uh, security in the sense that the value of the bond can fluctuate. Although uh, 
the risk of it actually not paying off in the end is, particularly in the case of a country like the United States, essentially zero. Um, they, that's not true for other countries, but in the U.S. case, or the case of Britain or other countries which have issued their own currencies and bar, uh, borrow in their own currencies, uh, they, um, they are able to uh, make a credible promise that they will always meet their obligations. Um, that again, a country which is in the Eurozone and which is subject to the European Central Bank actually has to have tax revenue to cover its uh, um, to cover its debts, or at least up to a point, uh, and there is a greater risk of default. And a country which is not able to borrow in its own currency at all, in the case of Latin American countries, for example, uh, have to have export earnings to cover their obligations, and that frequently the case that they can't make those. Um, ends meet and they do end up defaulting from time to time. So that means that they, when they do borrow, they have to pay a substantially higher interest rate. And nobody holds those bonds uh, for security reasons, whereas you, that's the reason you hold a U.S. government bond. You accept a very low interest rate because you know it's going to be paid. <clears throat> so... I don't know. I've I've read something. Maybe you even covered this. How does this relate to so if the government is because I've heard this argument that whenever the we're going to increase spending on something like there's a, maybe public works that the essentially the the Fed is simply printing dollars to use a sort of a metaphor versus uh, well it, that is a, a metaphor. Uh, it's actually the treasury that prints uh, paper dollars, and it only prints them to the extent that the public wants them. Uh, the vast majority of dollar transactions occur without any printing at all. They're just electronic, as I say, bo electronic bookkeeping exchanges. Uh, and uh, so uh, when the government makes a payment, uh, what it's doing is uh, making an electronic transfer. Uh, it's actually instructing your bank to add a number to your account. Right? So you get a social security check, and the, your bank simply adds that number right. uh, to credits you to that that, that amount. So the government, the, the government, just like a private bank, has the capacity to inject, create money in the system. The bank does it by making a loan, uh, which comes with an obligation to be repaid, the government does it by making a payment which doesn't have any such obligation. On the other hand, uh, if you are uh, dealing with the government, you do have a tax obligation. So you have a, you have a reciprocal obligation to, uh, to pay the government periodically. Uh, and that is the way in which uh, the supply of money is reduced. It's when you uh, pay the government your taxes, uh, they uh, they just simply deduct that amount from your bank account. You can see the money go away. It doesn't go anywhere. It just disappears. If you uh, decide that you're going to um, help the treasury out by uh, uh, taking, you know, you have a tax bill of say five thousand dollars, and you go to the bank and you say, uh, "Give me um, you know fifty one hundred dollar bills," and you take that down to the to the office of the treasury, uh, and you say, you know, here's my tax bill, and here's here's five thousand dollars in cash. They they will they will accept it. They will give you a receipt, and then they will take the cash and drop it into a shredder, 
they have no need for the cash. And uh, you can, in fact, go to the Bureau of Printing and Engraving and buy a bottle full of shredded dollar bills. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, so it is literally the case that when you pay the government, the money disappears. No, I and this is all, you know, this creation, you know, b currency being credit or debt backed. Also, that has a relationship to our what we call the national debt, right? Which is the national debt's just the stock of bonds that's in the hands of the public. So it is right. it is a debt to the to the government, um, but it is also the as a principal asset to households and the banking system. Uh, and uh, the, so the, 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 these two sides, we do have and have had since the Middle Ages something called double entry bookkeeping, liabilities on one side, assets on the other. Uh, and this is the case of the government bond. It's a liability to the government and an asset to the holder. I think there can be a lot of confusion in the general population, though, in terms of the difference between the national debt and something like household debt, right? And they get conflated, and I think this becomes well, a political talking point. That sure. Sure. The, the, the two are uh, very distinct. Um, their difference is that uh, if I have my household has debt, I have to have income uh, to cover that debt. Right? I have to have earnings uh, or savings. But anyway, I have to have some source of funds which I cannot myself create. But this is not the position of the government. Uh, the government is um, uh, an entity which is entrusted with uh, the authority uh, to create its own means of payment. Uh, so uh, it's not to say that the government can do this to an unlimited degree because it's constrained by the willingness of households to hold those bonds. That's the value of the currency. That's the, that's the objective of the government is to, is to maintain a, a uh, a balance between the level of economic activity that it's fostering uh, and the willingness of the public to hold on to the debts. Uh, and that can be a delicate balance. It can be an unstable balance. Uh, but it's very different from the problem of the household, which is to earn enough money uh, to be able to service any debts that they've been incurred. The government doesn't have to earn money in order to service its, its debts. It's, uh, it is the creator of the means of payment. So how does how does that play into the the national the deficit? We always hear these two things, and I don't think they're ever quite you know explained very well. To the well, the deficit person. is just the difference between uh, the it's an accounting concept. It's the difference between what the government spends and well, what it collects revenue. in tax revenue, uh, and that difference is made up by uh, the issuance of bonds. Those bonds are then held by the public, which can include both uh, American households and institutions like banks, as well as, as foreign ones. And to the extent that they're, that, that they're held by foreigners, it's matched by a difference between exports and imports. This is to say, we import more than we export uh, because foreigners are willing to hold bonds uh, rather than demand physical uh, equivalent value in the form of U.S. exports. Um, and that's a major, major basis of the, of the living standards of American households. Uh, we have been running a debt-financed trade deficit uh, since at least the early 1970s, so that's 40 years. Uh, that's longer than, I imagine, more than half the population of the United States has been alive. 
Um, and what that means is that we get a steady flow of, uh, of, goods, of goods from other countries uh, that uh, we're simply uh, uh, paying for with, a, with, a, with essentially a credit, and a credit which will, will not be used, uh, practically speaking, because once, as long as these countries continue to run surpluses with us, they're adding to their bank accounts but not drawing them down at all. How does this relate to, so was it someone from, I feel like it's someone from the Reagan administration that had said, you know, de deficits don't matter. Uh, well, that was, uh, was Vice President Cheney in Cheney. the George W. Bush administration who said early on to Paul O'Neill, who was Secretary of the Treasury and an upright figure of the old school of finance, and Cheney said, you know, Paul, deficits don't matter. That's what we learned from Reagan. Uh, and I actually quoted that and then uh, leaped into a chapter in one of my books some years ago. Uh, yes, it was a, a moment of candor for Mr. Cheney. <laughs> when it happens, you have to take note. I thought, again, just to, I think it's so interesting that the timing of this, it seems so correlated again to this rise in economic inequality, this whole, the, the sort of debt economy. I don't know. I just find that interesting, and I wonder what the what the true, if any, correlations are or causation. Well, that's that's something we've looked into with some care, um, and I'll, I'll describe the, the the measures that match up very well. On the one hand, if you look at household income inequality taken from tax records, um, and tax records are important, income tax records are important to use as a source for this because they include both the income that the vast majority of households earn from, from work, wages and salaries, but also the incomes that a relatively smaller number uh, earn from, um, from dividends, capital gain, realized capital gains, stock options, and other aspects that flow directly from, from capital asset markets, from the stock market, from real estate markets, and things of that nature. And also from firms that fund themselves from, from venture capital. So technology firms that may or may not have actual sales, but are, have income that they're getting from an investor that they're using to build up their firm. Right? And those, those, those tend to pay extremely well because in order to recruit the highest quality, most likely to succeed team, you have to pay the highest wages, highest salaries. So all of that means that when the stock market goes up, the inequality in the tax data go up, and you could it's 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 practically uh, uh, an exact proportional uh, relationship. The stock market goes up by fifteen percent. That inequality measure also goes up by fifteen percent, uh, and and so what one what one can see is that the inequality in household income since two thousand has had this kind of sawtooth pattern peaked in 2000 and there was a crash and the, the markets came down and then they recovered in, to a peak in around 2007. There was another big crash uh, and then they recovered up to, well, the day before yesterday. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that was, that, this is what shows up in the, in the income data. It's essentially driven by, uh, let's say, capital asset-based incomes flowing to relatively small numbers of very wealthy people. This is sort of a, I guess, a adjacent topic, but what it, 
is there any relationship between so creating new currency or creating new that number of of whatever money we have in the economy and and wealth creation because i've often heard that wealth itself is not it's not a zero sum game so whereas i think obviously i think currency must have at least at any given point it sort of has a bound does it have a limit to it currency you mean paper cash right or no, just most of it I mean, that no practical limit, except that most people don't want the stuff. All right? Most of us were increasingly content to use our, our, our plastic for transactions, so we use really very little cash. But the ATMs don't go, run dry, and the reason is that the, uh, the banks get from the, from the Federal Reserve whatever they need to keep them full. Uh, and then, uh, they pay for it by, by uh, making an electronic... Right. Corresponding debit. So I don't, I, and that's not it. There's no issue here with as far as paper currency. Well, even just not not ex- extending not it out to the sort of the, the electronic money because what something like ninety eight percent of all currency is electronic. Yeah, I've okay. read or something money like is, that. Money is electronic. Yes. Um, so uh, is there a limit on that? Well, the uh, the answer to that is is uh, it depends upon what the banks want to do. If they want to make loans, they can make loans uh, up to the point at which uh, they get guidance of one kind or another from the central bank saying, you know, cool it, slow down. Um, And uh, if they don't want to make loans, well, uh, it's hard to persuade them to do so when there aren't very many good substitutes. Uh, Thus, the, the key substitute, of course, is the federal government itself. The banks don't want to make loans. The Fed can always step in uh, and and buy goods and services directly. That's what Roosevelt did in the Great Depression. Uh, and uh, it has happened on numerous occasions since. And I think actually it's, uh, you know, it may be about to happen now. Uh, we had, uh, you know, we've had two substantial legislative enactments in the last few months the tax bill, uh, which uh, will transfer a fairly significant sum, about 1% of GDP, uh, to private accounts. And then just now, just last week, uh, an agreement on spending, which raised the caps that had existed on both military spending and uh, domestic discretionary spending uh, by substantial amounts, uh, so that we are entering an era of uh, of at least moderately and maybe substantially increased government spending. And that will mean that it won't be so necessary to rely on the banking system uh, to create loans in order to fuel the economy. Uh, I think that this is, uh, I mean, if it can be sustained, this is probably not a bad thing. Um, the, uh, the problem that we've had for almost 40 years uh, is that economic growth in this country has been driven by waves of bank lending. Uh, and the, you know, the first one of, that really is remarkable, uh, well, let, I, let's, let's name three of them. They were In the early, mid-1980s, there was the uh, savings and loan tobacco, which was a uh, certainly around here, a significant uh, overinvestment in real estate, commercial, and commercial real estate. Uh, residential and commercial real estate, which led to a, a, a crash of the savings and loans. Uh, then, in the from 
the early 1990s through the end of that decade, the information technology boom, right, which greatly expanded the reach of the, of the technology sector and crashed in 2000. And then in the, the next decade up to 2007, uh, a vast in, uh, uh, flow of lending to uh, basically, uh, basically fraudulent lending to, uh, uh, to borrowers who were not going to pay back in mortgages, the securitization of those mortgages and the sale out to the rest of the world, which led to a major collapse in 2008. Uh, so each time you get a boom that's based solely on private credit, uh, you're going to see a, a, a slump. You're going to see a, a breakdown at some point. Uh, and the expansion uh, that's occurred uh, since 2009 has been rooted in largely in the stock market. Uh, it's largely there. Um, Corporations buying back their own stocks, using uh, the uh, reserves of the banking system to 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 in, invest in the stock market, to buy back their own stocks, driving up the price, and hoping that enough of that moves trickles through the system to keep the economy growing, which it has worked up to a point, uh, two three percent growth for eight or nine years. Okay, so it's not, uh, and then households have come back in and. And, and increase their student loans and their consumer credit and uh, uh, their um, uh, their car loans. Uh, so all of that has been been fueling the recovery. Well, at some point, they're going to stop. <laughs> it's just as sure as it can be. Uh, and so having something that's more balanced between the public and the private sector has a reasonable chance of prolonging uh, this period of economic growth uh, compared to what would happen if we weren't doing it. So. I think that um, it's uh, we're at a very interesting moment when some of the shibboleths that are associated with no, no, you can't increase the national debt, you can't uh, run a deficit, uh, a federal deficit, uh, will be uh, uh, are being dropped. Which again is if if people understand that this is a good thing, that this is something that reflects economic common sense, we might be making some progress. Nice. Um, I have one sort of monetary theory or, or central banking sort of related question, and then I'd like to jump back into the sort of inequality discussion. So the Fed will has a sort of toolbox whenever the you know to sort of keep the economy from overheating or or what have you, or sort of some things to sort of help out and foster economic growth, like low interest rates, things of that nature. What what is what is quantitative easing? Because we, they, so, I've heard that term thrown around, and we had sort of been apl applied to by the Fed for several until fairly recently. Was that, my understanding? Yeah, actually, it was a term that was invented in the 1990s by the Bank of Japan, taken over by the U.S. in the, in the, in the crisis in 2007. It's the first time it was heard, I think, here. Um, the and what it is. Let's back up for a second and say that. Uh, for the most part, uh, the Federal Reserve has set monetary policy by manipulating a single instrument, which was the uh, interest rate that banks can charge each other when they need funds uh, to meet their reserve requirements. This is called the Federal Funds Rate, uh, and it's the overnight rate. Uh, and it's, it's very short term, and the 
the Fed can basically set it wherever it wants. Uh, so that's the policy rate, and the Fed has a committee called the Open Market Committee that meets every six weeks, and generally speaking, it changes or doesn't change the rate at that meeting. Uh, and by and large, it doesn't have to do anything to change the rate except make an announcement, and it will immediately trade at a new rate. Um, in 2008, when everything was going to hell in a handbasket, uh, the Fed felt a need to have a stronger policy instrument. Uh, they could set the federal funds rate at zero and say to the banks, no, you can have unlimited overnight money, so you're not having a liquidity problem. Uh, but they couldn't support the, that wouldn't necessarily support the price of government bonds or prevent interest rates from rising at the longer uh, end of the spectrum. So what they did was they said, okay, we're just going to buy stuff. We're going to buy, we're going to buy you know, government bonds. We're going to buy corporate bonds. We're going to buy uh, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and that is what quantitative easing is. It is expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. So they created these uh, entities uh, that hold, held large uh, uh, large volumes of, of private sector debt that they figured correctly, first of all, nobody in the private sector wanted to hold, uh, and secondly, uh, would probably for the most part pay off in the long run uh, because underneath them were, I mean, these were uh, packages of mortgages where you would have to get pretty high default rates before they became completely uh, uh, non-performing. Um, and so they figured that they could be the deep pocket that would hold on to these assets until, until things stabilized. Uh, and basically, that's what's happened. Uh, so that's, that's what quantitative easing is. It's also been practiced by the Bank of England and very much so by the European Central Bank, which uh, has been buying up the bonds of... Uh, so, let's say, somewhat less than completely solvent and virtuous countries uh, in order to prevent the, uh, uh, the Eurozone from falling apart. Italy, for example, at the moment is, is highly dependent upon quantitative easing by the, by the European Central Bank. Now, I'd, I'd like to move us a little bit back into the inequality realm and, and delve into that a bit. I've seen a, a, a chart indicating that productivity, and in this U.S.-centric productivity, has been increasing, but the share of that increase in productivity has not been, that distribution has been primarily that increase has gone to the sort of, I guess, the capitalist class or the shareholder class. Has you Have you researched that area at all or studied any of that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and I would just say um, this is an area of comparing um, statistical concepts and one has to be really careful. Uh, a characteristic comparison is between, uh, let's say, the productivity growth rate and the uh, growth of, of what's called the median wage or the median income, which is the income uh, of the hypothetical person who's exactly in the middle of the distribution. It's not the average. Um, and the problem, there are all kinds of problems with that because if the nature of the workforce is changing, uh, then 
the median will change for reasons that are not necessarily related to um, uh, to welfare considerations. For example, if there's there are more immigrants in the workforce, or if there are more young people, if there are more women coming into the workforce who haven't been working before, all of those people will tend to start work at below the median. That's where the below median workers are. And if there are more of them in the mix, the median will shift down, even though nobody's worse off. So the meaning of that particular statistic, in my view, is one which it, it is best to be wary of. It looks like a, it's kind of a, 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 a troubling statistic. And in some circumstances, it is. Uh, I think after the great crash and uh, the great crisis in 2007, 2009, the fact that the median fell at that point was a sign that things were really worse off. But it's not always the case. So I'd just be, be as a general rule, uh, there are economic statistics that one can uh, generally speaking, rely on and others that one has to, has to be careful of, and that's in the second category. Certainly. Yeah. I had heard a criticism of that as being that there had been so much investment and efficiency achieved through uh, just technology, investment in technology by the, you know, and the sort of investors in the capitalist class has benefited from that more so than maybe the depressed Depressed well, that's, wages um, that's or something certainly like that. true. I mean, that's certainly a feature of, the, of what's going on. If you ask where are income gains being made, and uh, uh, it's clearly concentrated in, uh, in two areas of the country. One of them is on the East Coast, where you're looking at banking and insurance and other financial sectors. Uh, and the other is on the West Coast, where you're looking at uh, information technology and aerospace and other high technology sectors. Uh, and... Clearly, what's happened is that these two uh, regions of the country uh, have ha enjoyed a, a spectacular uh, income growth as a result of their, the, the success of those sectors, and a large swath in the middle has suffered from deindustrialization and depression. Uh, and uh, the, the structure of the country has not been adequate to uh, prevent the... Um, uh, the regions which have been depleted from getting uh, very conscious of that and very angry about it. And at the same time, the regions that have done well have become very complacent. And you could see this in the last election. It's very clear <laughs> that uh, you, know, you had the Democratic Party was associated with these uh, wealthier and, and well, on, on, on average more successful regions. And the Republican Party was, was dominant in, in the plains and in the upper Midwest where people were regions are um, uh, you know, plainly have been left behind. Uh, so that's, I mean, I think become a, a, an exceedingly important piece of our politics. And here in Texas, where we have been in the Republican uh, 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 side of that ledger for a long time, the fact that we have rapidly growing, very prosperous cities and a rapidly growing immigrant population is actually moving the state toward the Democrats. You know, Texas voted, I think, three or four percent more for Hillary Clinton than it did for Barack Obama in 2012. And this is not because she was particularly <laughs> popular here. Right. I don't think it was just because the Democratic Party is having been at 40 percent uh, for a very long time uh, is actually getting some demographic advantages here that weren't there before. <clears throat> 
So in the context of our newest tax bill or t that has passed, um, so we've had a, I guess the approaches to economic growth have been largely supply-based for the last, what, you know, several decades. And this is no, no different here. What are some, what are some different approaches to creating economic growth? Because I've heard, you know, statistics like 70% of our economy is consumer driven. For sure. Um, and, and if so, it seems like we should sit, there should also be some sort of demand stimulus because that's where the growth comes from is well, demand. Gro growth is a um, product of, by definition of demand, what we call economic growth is the total flow of spending in the economy. Uh, and as you say, 70% of that is households. Uh, businesses used to be 13, 14%. And if my memory of the figures is right, it's recently been down in the range of 11. Uh, so the business sector investment has been low. Uh, that's been, I think, for two reasons. One of them is uh, that uh, basically commercial construction has been in glut. Businesses don't have any need for more facilities, so they don't build them. Uh, and the second one would be that uh, the price of business equipment has become really very low, uh, and business equipment is largely now imported rather than built at home. So instead of uh, instead of uh, you know, the era of bricks and mortar factories and uh, machine tool based industries that uh, we're now seeing, a lot of business investment is electronic equipment, uh, and a lot of that comes from. Japan, Korea, and China. Uh, so uh, the business investment has been low. Government sector has been low. It's been largely related to uh, what the consumer uh, wants to do, and the consume what the consumer wants to do has been driven by their access to credit. Uh, so, uh, will the tax bill make a difference? Um, my guess is it will make some difference because it is transferring them very large sums to the corporate sector in particular. Um, but I'm skeptical about it making a very big difference. I don't think businesses are going to be uh, rushing to increase their investments just because their, uh, their cash flow is higher. Uh, they, if they don't need commercial office space or retail space, they won't build it. Uh, and if there's a glut of those things, well, you know, they won't build more. Um, I said, and one thing I wrote, I said, maybe they will, some of the big players will use the money to drive some of the small players out. You'll get a kind of bubble. But I wouldn't think that's going to be, if it happens, it's not going to be a big thing or a very long-lasting thing. Uh, so uh, my guess is that you give these corporations more cash flow, they'll increase their dividends, they'll increase their stock buybacks, they'll increase their CEO pay, uh, but they won't increase their investment all that much. Uh, and then if you look at what's happening uh, in the tax code to middle class disposable income to what they have left after taxes, uh, well, there's some things which are not so great. Uh, the upper middle classes, it may be a perfectly fair and reasonable thing to cap uh, the deductibility of mortgages, but for a certain class of people, that cuts the value of their homes. Uh, it may be a perfectly reasonable thing, I think it probably isn't, uh, to cut the, uh, uh, the deductibility of, of state and local income taxes. But 
for people who are paying those taxes in states which have them, uh, that's, a, that's a hit to their incomes. Uh, and so those people are probably going to be spending a little less. If they're spending a little less, businesses that cater to them will be spending a little less. And you'll see some effects there. Uh, so I think the tax bill is at least, well, in the short run, it will improve uh, activity for a while. Over a longer period, it's at the very least a mixed bag. Uh, and one which was designed to be a mixed bag because uh, the, um, the, the purpose behind it was to satisfy demands from, from what I call, call the donor class of the Republican Party, large corporate interests above all, and the very, very wealthy who get a big tax break. Uh, and in order to keep the effects on the projected deficits under the control, they had to take it back from somewhere. And they took it back from the upper middle class in the states that vote Democratic. So could you, would you mind giving us, if you're, if you're open to do this, your, what, would be, what would be your sort of approach, broadly speaking? What is a more Im impactful strategy for some of these more systemic issues that we face yeah. in the economy? Well, I'm, I'm not a, a person who thinks that targeting the GDP growth rate is the end-all and be-all. Uh, I think you have to target the problems that you have. Uh, and um, in the wake of the crisis, economic security is a big problem. Uh, people have lost a lot of their independent wealth position. I would make that up by expanding and strengthening social insurance, uh, social security, Medicare, health insurance generally. Uh, unemployment insurance, uh, nutrition assistance, all the things that make it possible for people to have some confidence that they aren't going to completely fall through the cracks. Um, I would have dealt with the housing crisis by being very aggressive to protect people from foreclosure or to see that if they were foreclosed, they were not necessarily evicted. This was a great disaster that the Obama administration allowed to go through and did not counter. Uh, so lots of disruption to communities. We obviously have a major environmental challenge in dealing with the, the climate change, the energy supply, uh, and, and investments along those lines which are being curtailed uh, should instead have been expanded. Uh, so there's a, uh, a question of thinking about what kind of society we want to have over the next generation. What are the problems that we have to deal with and we have to face? and addressing those specifically. And then I would work out what the results are for the economic growth rate. And it is what it is. I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing. What about, a, what's your opinion on something like universal basic income that has become sort of a popular mm -hmm. talking point, particularly in the, in the tech industry? I'm not a fan of it. Um, I, my view is that, we, that universal basic income is... Um, a um, it's a two-edged sword. It would be a very mixed uh, blessing, uh, and for two reasons. One is that it would tend to uh, be viewed by its advocates as a substitute for other forms of social insurance, uh, and I'm. My view is that individualizing income does not solve the problem that you have that your expenses go up dramatically when you get sick, for example. Uh, 
And so one needs to have, or that you, you know, you don't know how long you're going to live. There, there are things in these uh, that where, where having the existing programs make a lot of sense. Secondly, the existing program, Social Security in particular, is a work-based program. It's an income-based program. You're, 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 you pay in uh, based on your income. You, you get a benefit based upon your past earnings. Uh, and so it reinforces a, let's say, a social consensus that's very strong in this country, which uh, uh, says that making a contribution through a, at least a certain period of your life uh, in the workforce is a valuable thing. Universal basic income says, well, okay, if you're prepared to live on the, on the basic income, you don't have to do that at all. Uh, and the third thing that troubles me is that um, the UBI proposal is a citizenship-based proposal, which means that it draws a sharp line between people who are citizens and people who are merely, for example, legal permanent residents, green card holders, let alone people who are, who are simply here temporarily. Whereas uh, the systems that we have, Social Security in particular, you don't have to be a resident. You don't have to be a legal, a permanent resident. Certainly don't have to be a citizen. To, to come into the country and earn anything, you have to get a Social Security number. Uh, so uh, that system is, uh, is one which uh, just is based upon the work that you've done in this country. Uh, and that seems to me to be a much more, um, well, let's say a, a, a fairer uh, way of, uh, of creating a, um, a claim for, a, let's say, a lifetime retirement income. Uh, and uh, that uh, it's been around now for 70 years uh, and is very well established. And I wouldn't want to undermine it by uh, experimenting with, uh, with an idea that, after all, was... Uh, uh, was heavily uh, marketed years ago by Milton Friedman, who's, <laughs> whose right. motives in these matters are not necessarily uh, uh, reliable. <laughs> That's funny. I was about to bring up that point about Milton Friedman being a more of an advocate for just giving people cash than having the different social programs. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a, uh, a, a popular uh, device for, let's say, undermining the the, the social welfare state uh, in the 1970s, 60s, and 70s, when Friedman was a, was an advocate for that sort of thing. I think too many people uh, bit on his dangle on that one. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm skeptical. I I think that in some sense, you know, it would be a way to spur entrepreneurship because you're not at the risk of losing out everything if you don't. You know what I mean? If you have an idea that you want to pursue. And create create a company. Yeah, but to be an entrepreneur, you still have to be able to get a bank loan. True. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, just having the income base is not going to make a big difference uh, for that. Um, the, uh, the the proposal that I think really bears has a lot of merit uh, and bears uh, much more should have a bigger audience than it's gotten. Uh, is the proposal by some economists who are affiliated with the MMT, Modern Monetary Move, uh, Theory Movement, uh, for a job guarantee. Uh, and the idea behind that is that uh, uh, employers basically like to, f to hire people who are already employed. They like to hire people who are already working, who can show, yeah, that they know how to get up in the morning and go and, 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 uh, and, and do a job. Um, 
so unemployment is uh, an experience which is not only demoralizing, but it also is very damaging for people uh, over the long run. It renders them, practically speaking, not only unemployed, but unemployable. What's the solution? Have a bank of jobs uh, that are administered by, uh, by state and local government, funded federally, uh, which uh, will pay, uh, let's say, a modest living wage uh, to which you can always go and always get hired, assuming, you're, assuming you perform, so that you're not in the position of uh, you know, doing, spending your days sending in fruitless uh, applications for jobs that may or may not exist. Uh, and then the, the, the government can use those, those people to do whatever public purposes uh, need to be served uh, they can spruce up the community. They can they can support uh, elder care. They can support the public schools. They can do any number of things. Uh, and uh, of course, the employers then will, will rather than going to uh, you know to the to the want ads to uh, to hire people, they'll come to the uh, to the employment pool and say say okay, I'll, I'll you know come hither. Uh, and of course, the wage that the government pays then becomes the minimum wage because. They can't undercut it. People will stay with a public job if they can't get a private job that pays better. Uh, so that's, that seems to me to be a system which uh, would work, has the potential for working very well and for solving one of the really ugly problems that are caused by an unstable private economy, which is that people get tossed out of the workforce you know, in their 40s and 50s and then can never get back in, end up just biding time until they, until they can retire. Another tactic or for this that I've heard is also like an, and forgive me if my terminology is wrong, something along the lines of, I believe I've heard it described as like a negative income credit or... Negative income tax. Negative income tax. I, I think that's essentially similar to a universal basic right. income. It's a, it is a device for saying that, uh, that, that uh, if you're below a certain level of income, you'll get a check from the government rather than have a liability. Uh, and that, of course, we have uh, earned income tax credit, uh, which plays is, is, is to some degree at least a form of insurance for the fluctuation in your earnings over, over a period of time. That's a good thing. Um, but uh, uh, as I say, I'm, I think when you have a structure, even if it is not a very, if it isn't the structure you would have designed uh, if you were starting from scratch, uh, but a structure of programs and systems that function reasonably well, you should build on them. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm enough of a, of a small C conservative to be uh, skeptical of, of, uh, of sort of radical restructurings and particularly of ideas that, that, that haven't been tested anywhere and haven't been shown to, be, to work. Uh, when, when Roosevelt started the New Deal in the early 1930s, he at least had the experience, uh, his own experience as governor of New York, uh, and there, were the, there was the progressive government in uh, Wisconsin and other, a few other states where people had at least uh, put some of this into, uh, uh, into, into practice at, this, at the state level. Uh, and uh, that meant that the New Deal had a much better chance of success than it would otherwise have. So, for instance, so building our model for healthcare on something like the NHS or different existing systems around the world, 
is a better approach than just totally scrapping. You know what I mean? That's sort of an yes, evidence-based yeah, sure. yeah, sure, approach. Sure, evidence-based. The NHS, uh, the Canadian health system, uh, one could look at Germany or Switzerland or other, which have elements of private insurance involved. Um, I think those are, uh, that's all very reasonable to do. Um, you take the fact that we have, uh, or you have the fact that we have Medicare. Uh, and what we should have done, one of the things we should have done 10 years ago is simply cut the age of eligibility for Medicare from 65 to 55, and you would have taken uh, a lot of people who are you know, a little bit on the older side um, and uh, uh, removed them from being risk factors in private insurance. It would have made the private insurance markets more uh, stable than they are now. That's still a possibility. Uh, that's a step on the way, perhaps, to Medicare for all. Is that a position that you would advocate as, as Medicare advocate for? Would be Medicare for all? I'm open to it. Uh, I'm conscious that there are complications uh, that one has to think about. I, one reason why you didn't get the Medicare at 55, which almost passed the Senate, uh, was that uh, there are a lot of small hospitals who would have had trouble uh, making it on the Medicare reimbursement rates. Uh, and so I'm conscious when you have a certain amount of you know, sort of fixed costs that you've already incurred, uh, that uh, you have to be careful about reforming the funding base because you don't want to, th you know, you don't want to throw uh, the, the existing structures into chaos. But yes, ultimately, a single-payer insurance system would uh, save a great deal of money. And if you ended up, uh, and a great deal, and of other resources as well, and if you ended up without having uh, the, the uh, share of the economy that goes to the private health insurance, that would be that would be something you could tolerate. <laughs> I mean, because private health insurance, what's the real point of it? It is uh, designed to separate the healthy from the sick so that a private insurer could make money. Uh, a, a, a universal system where you have one insurer and everybody's in the pool is simply more efficient, uh, right. although it's not more profitable from a private standpoint. Certainly. So... And having a larger addressable market, so if we have the entire population of the U.S. at 330 million, that that risk pool is so much higher, or the risk is lower when it's being dispersed among. I mean, that's how insurance works, right? Yeah, it's, sure, you sure, know, sure. You basically, health, the healthier subsidizing the unhealthy or sick, if well, you will. Well, the people who are healthy at any given moment right. are, are, are bearing the, the burden for those who get sick, but the people who are healthy will be sick sometime. Certainly. I think also remove even from sort of a conservative economic standpoint, removing that burden from employers would be a boon as well. Yes, it would help. Uh, although, fair to say that employers may have mixed emotions because if they are when they are paying health insurance, this gives them uh, a hold over their workers uh, that they um, that among other things, Obamacare. Uh, relaxed, uh, and uh, it was one aspect of Obamacare which was really quite progressive and quite pro-worker, is that it gave a worker who, who was working for an employer that didn't like uh, an opportunity to move on and say goodbye, no, I don't need to stay here just for my health insurance. Uh, and uh, some employers, uh, needless to say, uh, found that problematic. I must say my sympathy for them is not unlimited, but... <laughs> 
I've heard an argument as well, kind of along those lines or tied into that topic, that sort of the increases in wages, that's where those have been directed, is towards increasing healthcare costs. Um, sort of the, the minuscule increases that there have been have been, though, and since most Americans' employers pay their, the bulk of their healthcare costs. Yeah, what one has seen, and you look at the statistical picture over a long period of time, uh, you see that that the uh, the the cash out to the worker as a share of output has a uh, share of income has fallen, and the uh, uh, let's say indirect benefits as a share have risen. Uh, now that's I think partly uh, deferred compensation going into retirement accounts, and partly uh, and probably substantially healthcare insurance premiums. And then you have a kind of question, okay, who is actually the beneficiary of those healthcare insurance premiums? Is it the healthy worker who now has access to a better class of healthcare for the case where they may get sick? Is it only the unhealthy worker, the one who gets sick and actually benefits from this? Or is it the medical establishment that are getting their income out of this? I, so that, that's, that's not a question you want to ask an economist to answer. <laughs> I, I suggest a theologian. <laughs> right. uh, uh, so we're, we have about 25 minutes. I sort of am out of specific questions. Are there any sort of topics or thoughts that you would be open to sharing in sort of free form? Or, well, or whatever, even questions for me, perhaps? Go ahead, whatever you want to ask me about. Uh, I'm just kind of... Uh, what, what are you curious about? Uh, I'm sort of curious. Okay, so I've, I've delved a lot into, I guess, more socialist ideas lately. Um, and, or social Marxist critiques and I guess anarchist critiques of just like sort of the general relationship between labor and capital. And I find them pretty compelling, at least from sort of, I don't know, even from like a moral standpoint of, it feels like the economy should be, so it's a, it's a, it's a social system, right? that we're all participating in. We are all, so the janitor is participating, the CEO of Exxon is participating. So none of those individuals, like we need all of, we need both individuals, right? right well, Contributing. Okay, this all gets to some very interesting material that I, I, I take up uh, every year with my students, um, which is, uh, okay, what was the, the classical... Marxian critique of the system that uh, he uh, observed and analyzed in the middle 19th century. It was uh, that rather than being based on cooperation, it was, it was fundamentally based on conflict. And the conflict was one in which they, the, the working classes were, uh, so long as capitalism survived, going to be the losers, and that they were going to be reduced to a state of penury and uh, uh, and eventually, because they were completely dispossessed, they would rebel. Uh, and in addition to that, the argument was that the system would be very unstable and prone to collapse. Now, that second argument seems to me to have been pretty well validated. The system is unstable. It is prone periodically to collapse. It needs the reinforcement of the public sector to prevent it from collapsing. Uh, and in the United States, certainly, that reinforcement has been forthcoming. It's been there. Uh, so the system hasn't collapsed, but you know, in 1933, it was 
it was essentially collapsed in, uh, in 2007. Uh, on well, the brink. <laughs> on the brink, yeah. In fact, beyond the brink, it was took a, 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 the institutions held, but they, it wasn't, wasn't uh, a sure thing. Uh, what about that first claim that, they, that this is going to drive the working classes down to, uh, to poverty? Uh, you know, Marx was observing, uh, actually reading reports of what had happened uh, in the Industrial Revolution, which at least my generation was brought up to believe was this great wave of gadgets and mechanical inventions that uh, improved, uh, you know, transformed living standards. Well, it turns out uh, that Marx's evidence on this period turns out to be substantially right, that, uh, uh, that this, was, this was a dreadful period for working people, uh, people who had lived, lived relatively decent lives in the countryside were crammed into cities that had no uh, public health, that uh, their life expectancies got shorter, their, their, their physical size got shorter, they were subject to waves of epidemics, all kinds of nasty business. Um, but then things got better. And the, somehow in the second part of the 19th century and into the 20th, the living standards of the working classes didn't continue to get worse. Uh, in fact, they became... Uh, altogether uh, tolerable by and large, and uh, even already by the early part of the 20th century, the great Marxian prediction that the workers would not go to war with each other proved to be false. They went eagerly off to the First World War. Uh, so in some sense, nationalism triumphed over, over the class unity. Uh, and again, and throughout the 20th century, the, the uh, uh, by and large, the living standards improved. Why was that? Uh, the guy who gives, you know, I think, a first really sharp insight in, into this uh, is Thorstein Veblen, you know, the, in many ways the greatest economist ever produced in the United States. Uh, and Veblen's argument was that uh, the industrial system uh, produced a whole class of goods for working class consumption that were not the same goods that the upper class produced, but that mimicked them, that imitated them. Uh, and often but with ma machine-made industrial materials uh, that were uh, much less expensive, uh, but very functional. So you think about where the, where the wealthy ate off of, off of silver, the, uh, the working class ate off of aluminum and stainless steel. Uh, and you can go down the list to where the, where the wealthy used their handmade fountain pens, the, working class got the ballpoint, uh, and where uh, the, the wealthy to this day rejoice in a, in a finely handcrafted automobile, the working class get, drives a Honda. Uh, it's uh, a, a constantly reproduced pattern uh, in which, uh, by and large, uh, you know, if you're uh, where, the, where the wealthy require an oil painting, the working class makes do with a print. Uh, it's a... a, a uh, a system which is uh, uh, highly graded uh, with a huge division of classes, uh, if you like, uh, a, a kind of a hierarchical structure, but one where the creature comforts are, are, are at least plausible until you get very far down the income stream. And so, by and large, people are loyal to the system that provides that. Uh, and 
uh, so long as there's a risk that something worse can happen, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they, you know, they balance those risks. Uh, political radicalism is much less now than it was even 40 or 50 years ago when I was young. Uh, so uh, that strikes me as a, uh, uh, a set of facts which uh, people who have clung to the Marxist faith uh, have had to wrestle with and uh, not entirely successfully. Uh, and that was, of course, true for the, the countries that were actually socialist. That they, they, they discovered that uh, even though they were successful in providing basic living standards, uh, food, housing, clothing, uh, they were extremely unpopular because the quality of those goods were not it was not interesting, and what people wanted was not just to be able to eat, but to eat in an interesting way, and not <laughs> just to be able to dress, but to dress in a stylish way. Uh, so that, uh, I mean, I discovered this when I was very young, and I hitchhiked through Eastern Europe. You could, you could live for an entire summer in Romania in 1970, uh, 1970 for the price of a, for selling a pair of blue jeans uh, out of your backpack. Uh, it's just, you know, it was, that was a, a good that, uh, that the teenagers of, uh, at that time in that place didn't have access to. Um, the, uh, and that gets to, um, stop me if I'm going on for too long, but no, that no, gets no, to no. another interesting question, which is um, there was one country that came out of socialism, out of communism, uh, that managed to provide this interesting diversity and uh, uh, improved quality of consumer goods in a way that created uh, a consumer culture, right? Out of essentially nothing, out of out of out of a system that actually didn't have it 50 years ago, uh, and that country was the largest so-called communist country of them all, People's Republic of China. So this is very fascinating. What happened there? Right. right? Uh, and there are two things that happened that are, I think, really worth interesting. One is that the Chinese, instead of uh, entrusting this task to very large-scale state enterprise, to the kinds of enterprises that produce steel and, uh, and mined coal and so on and so forth, which were largely defense industries that they built up in the 50s and 60s, they, they entrusted it to many, many thousands, uh, millions of small businesses, of small and medium businesses, which were owned by townships and villages by and large. Uh, and they started producing all the clothing and shoes and uh, eventually electronic equipment and things of that nature. And then they grew. Um, so that was one thing. But where did they, how did the quality improve? The answer is, to that is, it seems to me, the Chinese got the idea that if they sold goods to the West, Firms would have to produce at the standards demanded by the buyers. And they, rather than, than trying to grow their own standards, they could simply import them and say, okay, Walmart, what do you need? Right? And if they managed to produce for what? For the Walmart market, they could produce the same good at orders of magnitude, larger quantities, and sell it on the Chinese market, which is what they've done. And as a result, you go to China and you discover people are stylish, they're not. Uh, there, there's no uniformity. There's, uh, they, they dress better than we do. 
uh, and uh, you know you can you can see the differences in the level of living, but they're not about the basic commodities that people consume. Uh, so that's uh, you know again something where I, I my own feel, feeling is that by being stuck in some categories that we learn from the 19th century uh, and even from the start of the 20th, we by and large haven't got the our minds around the way in which a one-time communist system has arrived at a more effective production of, let's say, capitalist consumer goods than we're able to do here. And that's a reality with which we're, you know, we're, we're grappling. It, makes, it, it, it informs our politics because it's part of what Donald Trump says when he says the Chinese are screwing us. <laughs> How are they screwing us? By providing us with goods that are produced at very low, uh, low cost. Well, we say, well, the Chinese worker is being very low paid. And certainly that's true. The Chinese worker uh, is living on a dollar income, which is very low. But is the Chinese worker living at a living standard, which is very, very low? The answer to that is, well, you would go and have a look. Right? You'll discover that the Chinese cities are pretty vibrant places and full of people who look like they're, like they're eating on a regular basis and dress reasonably well. My thesis on this is just the, the sort of philosophical and intellectual tradition of China is one that sort of leans more in the direction of a collective or a, you know what I mean, a group identification versus the, the individual, the focus on the individual in the Western world. And so there's been, I think a, there's a more, they're more open to that sort of idea than, than the individual being the ultimate. Um, I'd be wary of that. Um, the, uh, I'm thinking about people I know, and I, I, I that's not something that I uh, would immediately recognize uh, in, amongst my, my Chinese connections, which, by the way, include uh, my wife, my mother-in-law, ah, okay. and my sister-in-law, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and my daughters. <laughs> so... Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Especially my daughters. If there's any collective spirit there, well, it's not materially different from... <laughs> from oh. Sort of, I, I don't know if this is even necessarily a Marxist critique, but one real thing that I've found interesting, I've heard a, a statement that just sort of the relationship, the, the relationship between the worker and the capitalist or the employer is is sort of obscured by by money by currency and it as in the in the sense that as a worker i don't see the total value that i'm creating i only see my paycheck right yeah well that's um a characteristic of practically any production system, whether it's capitalist or socialist. The exceptions would only be uh, craft work, uh, professional work, uh, and uh, uh, maybe farm labor, uh, farm, farming as opposed to farm labor, uh, where, you're, where you're, what you're doing is you're bringing your product to market. Uh, and we have both. 
uh, obviously, in any in any system that's uh, that's functional, that both both systems coexist. Uh, some are better. Some some things are better provided uh, by one and the other. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's fair. It's fair to say that the uh, the factory where the worker just brings his time uh, or her time and uh, has no direct link to the final output uh, is one which has the potential to be a lot more alienating. Uh, but on the other hand, it's better paid uh, characteristically. And uh, that's the reason I mean, they're, 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 in order for the factory system to survive in the long run, the factory owners made made class compromises. They, they dealt with unions. They set up, they accepted pension systems, all kinds of things that made the fact, when it, when it added Zenith, made the factory system uh, an attractive alternative to piecework or to you know, cleaning houses or whatever it is. Uh, that was the alternative for those workers. My thought on this was to also, how do you, how does one determine the value of something like you know, if you're working in a customer service department, like how do you, how do you create a monetary value or, you know what I mean? Quantify that value that that sort of work well, is creating yeah, in relation I, to where, as opposed yeah, to someone I, working I, in a factory. I, I think what you're doing now is pointing out a, 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 a major development in the character of work, which is relatively, um, well, I would say it's recent, but it has a, some distinct characteristics that are increasingly important uh, and are very ugly. Uh, and that is the kind of work which is individually controlled and monitored by some larger electronic system. Uh, that really didn't exist uh, a century ago, 50 years ago, relatively limited. But now it's becoming very very common. So you, you go in, you sit in front of a monitor, and it, uh, you're, it let's say you're, it's a call center, and it, it, it checks, it, it can overhear everything you say, it can check how many minutes or seconds you're away from the, the call, how much time you loiter between calls. Every detail of the transaction is under the minute control of the system, which permits you to be really turned into a kind of automaton. Uh, I think it's clear to me that is going to be increasingly problematic. People, it's hard for me to imagine that people will put up with it indefinitely. Uh, and what, of course, happens is that the companies then offshore it try to find people who will put up with it. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is a very oppressive type of work. Te would we call it technocracy? Or is that a no, mic inflating? That technocracy is a different is a different term, but this would be kind of techno tyranny, uh, <laughs> a, 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 a techno totalitarianism, a, a kind of a kind of work which uh, has got to be in, in many ways the the least desirable sort of work. Uh, in the factory, as I say, the traditional factory, the worker had some leverage because if they didn't cooperate with the machines, the, the, the product didn't get made. Uh, but here you've got on the combination of, of, of low pay and extremely 
highly regulated, disciplined, uh, kind of militarized um, uh, work environment. Um, and it's, it's, as I say, hard to say how that doesn't produce uh, rebellion at sooner or later. An interesting case, uh, by the way, I mean, that I had experience with many years ago was uh, uh, General Motors famously uh, put a very modern automobile plant in a place called Lordstown, Ohio, just north of Youngstown. In, in 1972, I happened to be for two months the McGovern campaign quarter in that congressional district. So I got to know the people in the unions. Um, I was 20 years old at the time uh, there. And uh, the, uh, what had happened there was that GM, which was a, a, a firm with a very strong affinity for a kind of military way of organizing production, had put uh, a factory together which was intended to produce cars very fast, on a very fast assembly line, very regimented. Uh, and uh, the workers, uh, by and large, just stopped uh, uh, assembling the vehicles so that they would end up coming down the assembly line and ending up at the end as a pile of parts, uh, which meant that they had to be assembled by hand off of the, in the, in the, uh, in the repair shop. Uh, and that was the kind of leverage that workers had in that environment. But you could see if everybody's isolated and being controlled individually by some uh, uh, the monitoring systems that we have now, um, you know, it's, the, the, the system has overcome the capacity of, of, of the workers to directly uh, assert their Latent right. authority over Throwing it. a what a wrench in the machine, uh, literally sab sabotage <laughs> the wooden shoe is the sabot. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I I heard that reference in a Star Trek film. <laughs> oh well, it's in an essay by Veblen called "On Sabotage." Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nice. Um, so we're we're pretty close to being at time. Mm -hmm. I w I wish I had asked this or delved into this topic a bit further or earlier. Would be sort of on the lines of sort of predatory capitalism, it sort of feels like that the practice of capital today, and it sort of, it even goes back to that, that you mentioned at the end of the, or the beginning of the industrial revolution where the farmers or the peasants are moving into urban areas with industrialization. It seems like capital is basically, it's, it's privatizing all of the common the commons of society and then building a gate around them and then charging us for profiting from that. Oh, this is, uh, I, I think, a, a, it is where the political lines are very often drawn. What should be the, the public and what should be the private sphere? Like we're sitting here right on the uh, on the edge of, of, <laughs> of Lady Bird Lake, and there's a battle over whether the public park should be uh, deeded over to a private company to build a soccer stadium. It's exactly emblematic of this kind of question. Uh, and uh, obviously, if you build the soccer stadium, the GDP goes up. Uh, but if you have the public park, you have an asset that everybody can enjoy without uh, it uh, being a cost to them personally. Uh, so... Uh, many of us feel that the problem is one of what is called social balance. Uh, and there was a, uh, an economist of some prominence who, who uh, coined the phrase uh, 
private affluence and public squalor as being the, pro uh, the problem of the day. That was in 1958. The economist's name was John Kenneth Galbraith. And the, the, book, was called, <laughs> the book was called The Affluent Society, uh, and it's dedicated to me. <laughs> I'll have to read that. Um, I, th I thought that the sort of net neutrality was, again, sort of an example of this, maybe a different level or perhaps not a one-to-one, -one, but that's kind of the immediate thought that I had is that this sort of walling out, you know, profiting off of the commons, the, the internet yes, that the, we... The net, the net neutrality issue is a nice example of this. And one can multiply them. Uh, and, you know, in some cases you could say, well, uh, is it really harmful that we have toll roads? Uh, well, I'm, I'm open on that uh, question. But in, in, in certain areas where you're looking at uh, what is a broad public benefit, then you can make, I think, a compelling case for keeping uh, a public asset in being and keeping them, uh, 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 and the community in some sense is tied together. This library is a nice example. Uh, you're sitting here in a, in a, in a room uh, that is in a public facility uh, that has just been uh, opened recently in the city of Austin. And I have to tell you that my 15-year-old daughter is completely addicted to it. <laughs> it's a great institution. Yeah. It absolutely is. And we are, we are at an end for this episode, but Dr. Galbraith, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your afternoon to come and speak with me. It's been great. Great, a great pleasure. Thank you very much.